Sorry I'm late. It's just like this new schedule is totally confusing. And I know that, dude. Mr. Spicoli. That's the name they gave me. Hey, you're ripping my car. Yeah. Hey, bud, what's your problem? No problem at all. I think you know where the front office is. You dick! Hello there, and welcome to Pivotal Film. My name is Thomas Xavier Nolan. And I'm Mario Xavier Nolan. We just, we just figured this out, that we have the oh, wait, same middle and last name. Oh, yeah, I just I changed my last name. Everything's different now. Yeah, and weird. Happy two days after Valentine's Day, but for us, it is Valentine's Day. It is Day. Valentine's Day, yeah. And, you know, Tom has a spouse who he's abandoned to... <laughs> I got permission. To, to, you know, entertain, quotation marks, you find listeners, so... You know what? Send him some love. I also am neglecting my significant other, left and right hand. No, they're here. And other, other appendages. They're just doing things. There's weird doing appendages you don't even want to talk about. Oh, man. What's going on in the, the annals of film? We got a Frozen 2 trailer. Nobody gives a shit about that. Mm. I mean, people do, but they're wrong because they shouldn't care. It looks like Fall's coming in that movie. And they're le- they left Arendelle. Which oh, apparently is supposed to be significant. I don't even know what that means. There's a Batman versus Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles animated film coming. That should be great. Awesome. I'm ready. And, uh, you know, literally everyone is cast in Dune, so. Yeah, that, that should be, that'll be Josh bad. Josh Brolin and Jason Momoa in it now. There's no way that movie is good. Yeah. I wonder if those people have read Frank Herbert's book. Yeah, that book sucks. Actually, you know what? I, well, tell you. I mean, I don't know even if it's... I couldn't even get actually, through I it because I didn't understand what the hell was happening. I can't, I can't say it's bad. This is actually the one book I turned away after the first page. Because one, the first page is, was, just, was just awful. But there's some, in the first page it says like the year is 11,000. And I was, like, I'm, I was like, I'm done. We're not making it that far. It, was just, it just it doesn't, as a premise, make sense that you could even imagine that far. Like yeah. anything you're going to do just feels so... Much like a facade. I'm kind of reading a book about that right now um, by Chuck Klosterman. And he talks about um, Ray Kurzweil, who's kind of developed this idea of um, the singularity, where by the year 2045, everybody will be able to download their entire, the entire contents of their brain onto the internet. And so it'll like create this unified consciousness on the internet where we can all know everything. That is that's, on the internet. That's not going to happen. So that's what the kind of the premise of the book is that like to believe in this, you have to be, you have to believe in something that is theoretically impossible. Um, especially considering that the original time that we were supposed to be able to do this was by twenty twenty eight. So he's moved it back, you know, seventeen years, just you know, because <laughs> because we're hey, moving too slowly. I guess. Listen, man, the world has been over for three years. If we listen to Ghostbusters two. That's true. The world was ending on February 14th, 2016, so maybe we're all dead. Mm-hmm. And in which case, we're all immortal. We should have and had you know Peter... what you do when you're immortal? Yeah. You drink a beer. With Peter McNichol? 
Yeah. <laughs> I was like, who's Peter McDickle? And it took me a second. I was like, oh, that, that guy. Uh, this is from Six Point Brewing, I believe, our second beer? No. I think it's the first official Six The first Point official beer. beer the, from the Ad Eternity's Gate episode where both me and Tom... Well, Tom forgot to bring the, uh, the, gimmick, the, beer. the, the gimmick beer. And uh, I just said I was going to get one, and then I just forgot to. And then me and him scrambled and got two different types of beer. One of them was Six Point. Yeah. But we didn't talk about that one. We talked about the uh, Bastard beer. The uh, Dogfish Head. The, the dog. uh, Bitches Brew. Bitches Brew, yeah. Um, this, so this is the first official beer from Six Point. I'm going back over to a porter instead of a stout. Um, also, we did a sour last week. But this is barrel-aged four bean. It is a porter. With cocoa husks, coffee, and Madagascar vanilla added. Ooh. So not vanilla from Madagascar, but vanilla from the film Madagascar. So tell me if you mm. taste a little Ben okay. Stiller in there. Yep. Ben Stiller's in Madagascar, right? Yeah. Yeah, he's Growing the up. lion. Let's dink this shit. Dink it. I don't I really don't like six points cans. They're a little try hard and gimmicky. That's supposed to be Baltic-y. A Baltic porter, huh? Let's Explain what that means to me. Oh, I don't know. Not there is a lot of going on in that in that Ooh. sip, my friend. Ooh. Ooh. And I'm, I'm reading here, it's a, a special blend of liquid-aged in rye whiskey and bourbon barrels. Oh, you definitely taste you that rye. You get that right in the front. That rye is just Oof. a punch in the face. But then in the back, it's a nice smooth vanilla taste. Yeah, I don't get, I don't get the, the cocoa, though. Maybe it's like a... Uh, calm cocoa. Uh, Baltic porters typically, usually porters aren't super high in ABVs, um, but they're kind of reflective of like a Russian imperial stout. Mm-hmm. In that, uh, you know, they're really high alcohol. They're really sweet. A lot. Some other porters are more smoky, mm-hmm. malty, kind of like your German kind of beers. Mm-hmm. Um, we talk a lot about German beer on this podcast. I, mean, I almost got a German smoked <laughs> ale on this. A German smoked lager. You know what? I, I kind of... speaking of which, East Rock Brewing. Starting next week, fellas and ladies, if you're in the New Haven area. I don't think we have any New Haven listeners, but they now have a shuffleboard uh, there. And starting next week, February 21st, a shuffleboard league will be started. And we will be broadcasting live from the shuffleboard tournament. Well, I was hoping it was going to start earlier. No, we're not. I was going to be like... If it started at like six thirty, I was gonna be like, "Oh, let's let's do let's be a shuffleboard team and then do the podcast." I know you would never agree to that, but that would have been great. We could do the podcast while wearing headsets while we play shuffleboard. <laughs> it would just become a shuffleboard podcast, and people are just like, "Can you interact?" Our viewership with explodes. With film cinephiles and shuffleboard players, that's we don't talk about this anymore. We just talk about shuffleboard. Um, yeah, this is this is good. Also, I actually kind of like it. I don't think it's it's. Um, I like the idea that it's changing inside my mouth. That the flavor is one thing and then becomes another thing. That's kind of like an Angelina Jolie Clint Eastwood movie. <sighs> yeah, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Uh, no, I like. Uh, it's not super sweet, and a lot of high alcohol beers. This is an eleven point five, I believe. Was no, 11, 11. 11 flat. Yeah. Um, a lot of those beers, for example, the our enemies at Thimble Island. Yeah, um, no longer our friends. Their beers were really sweet. They had a lot of sweetness covering up their flavors. And this is not sweet. It has a lot of what you would believe to be sweet flavors. But, you know, there's a complexity to it. It's like a raw... It's kind of like a deconstructed rye whiskey. 
and the fact that like you expect the smokiness of the wood as you kind of burn the oak and whatnot. And if there's somebody out there that's a big rye or bourbon fan, they can bash me down for this. But mm. you know, you get that 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 mix of complex flavors from the burn of the wood, the vanilla, the cocoa, uh, you know, the, the general smokiness. And this seems to be like a deconstruction, mm. like you know, deconstruction like. Deconstructed foods were really popular in yeah. the early 2000s. This is like that in <clears throat> beer form. I love deconstructed this, foods. This, this is, is pretty good. It's pretty good beer. Better porter stout we've had. Mm. Six point for such like a... I mean, it's not really a microbrewery. Not anymore. It's, it's definitely... It's not macro, but it's definitely... No, but it's moved into that kind of into territory. That kind of, yeah. that, near that like Sam Adams dogfish head level. You know, I think them and dogfish head are two of the more solid... Um, of the big breweries, I don't. I've never had something from them I don't like. Well, here's what I would say about that: is that if you're a dogfish head, you can get you know 60 minute, 90 minute, 120 minute, anywhere you want. 75 minute, too. 75 minute. You can. Um, I, I saw that recently. I was like, what oh, really? is this? Um, that's actually the best one. I think. Well, that's that's the thing. So you can, there's all these different variables of dogfish head that they literally have everywhere. It's on tap everywhere around here. You can get bottles of it everywhere. Blah 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 blah. So they can take an they can take a chance. Dogfish head by making like you know, um, you know, limited release batches like the guided by voices beer that they made or the bitches brew beer that they made. Yeah. Um, whereas like a smaller micro brew, you know, needs to like they, stick to. They that need focus. to make you know. So New England's gonna make you know um, fuzzy baby ducks and Jiba and Sea Hag forever yeah. because that's where they make their money. Yeah. And uh, well, I think we should probably stop talking about the beer because if you hear in the background. It's our brownies yelling at us because I made Tom Yay! brownies for Valentine's Day. Thanks, we'll be Brian. right back with a, a discussion that's a little less sweet. <laughs> uh, so we both saw High Flying Bird. You want to get back on the court? And I give agent, I want to get you there. But we are in a lockout. There are no actual games to watch. You think these fools, these rich white dudes, gonna let these sexiest sport fall by the wayside? This team's my family. I need us to be one big family again. Football is fun, but it don't sell sneakers. To move merch and inspire rap lyrics, they need your services. Um, the new Netflix film, directed, shot, and edited by Steven Soderbergh, and written by Terrell Alvin McCraney. Who co-wrote Moonlight. Who co-wrote Moonlight. Um, he wrote the play that it was based off of. Um, the movie stars Andre Holland as Ray Burke, who is a sports agent in New York. Uh, he represents Eric Scott, who is a rookie who just got drafted and signed his contract um, be- right before the NBA went into a lockout. Um, Zazie Beats plays Sam. She is Ray's assistant when the movie opens, but has bigger aspirations. Sonia's, uh, Sonia Sohn is Myra. She is the head of the Players Union. Um, Kyle McLaughlin, being awesome, plays David Seaton, who is in the owner, I guess, of the New York team. Uh, this They had, didn't have any rights to use any of the NBA stuff, so you know the New York team is just referred to as NY, um, Which, very cleverly. Know, it's the Knicks, but... Um, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, it's the Knicks, but, um, you know... The Nets aren't bad enough to have, like, an early round... To have two early round first draft picks, right? The Nets are bad enough to have are two. They? And yeah. the Nets actually... Well, but... Ne- I know very little about that. Neither team... So the Knicks are more likely in the sense that the Knicks had their last two draft picks, and the Nets haven't had a first round draft pick in a long time because they traded their first round draft picks to the Celtics, like, six years ago. But that's neither here nor there. Um... 
Zachary Quinto plays another agent who I guess is supposed to be Ray's boss or someone's gunning for Ray's job or no, some he is, kind of thing. He is the, bo- he is, he is the boss. Like, even though Ray I'm... kicks him out of his office at the end of the movie. Well, no, the end, Ray just takes his job is the idea you get. And um, a just tremendous performance from Bill Duke. As uh, Spencer, who's a coach of a like a youth basketball organization. Have you ever seen Bill Duke in a movie and been like, you're not doing it, Bill Duke. You're not doing it for me. Have I? Yeah. No, I've never is seen it. Is it ever a thing? Like, I don't think it's possible. Like, when he popped up in Mandy, I was like... Nice. I was, one negative thing I have to say about Mandy was that there's only one scene. With Bill, Bill Duke, Duke, and he's sitting down. Yeah. And they gave him an awesome name like Carruthers. It doesn't <laughs> right. give him anything to say. Um... It's interesting, I guess, the thing that everyone's saying about this movie is that it's a basketball movie and there's very little basketball being played. You see um, two <laughs> shots phone. get taken on mm. a phone. Um, you see Andre Holland miss... No, Andre Holland takes a lot of he shots. He takes a couple of shots, but he's, he's not really... He's not he's very... He's not very, yeah, he's not very good at and, shooting. And Bill Duke is just standing there while he while he shoots. Um, uh, the, uh, the gimmick, if you want to wrap this in air quotes, of this movie is that Steven... Schoderberg shot it on his iPhone. It's the second straight movie that he shot on iPhone. Not Unsane was shot on iPhone as well. Um, I think it's an, I think it's an interesting choice from a intimacy standpoint. I mean, he's able to kind of really d- get in there, and it looks kind of it looks kind of like how everything looks on your phone now. You know, what I mean, if you watch clips of stuff of people just doing things, um, I mean, from it has color, that kind of from a color and lighting standpoint, it's definitely more refined but that's what happens when you have you know a hundred thousand dollar lighting rig to work with um it's i think it's a lot less personal in the way it's shot than the um than unsane mm-hmm. i think unsane makes you guys still haven't seen unsane yet right no i think unsane does a lot more work with the gimmick in the sense of integrating it i was gonna um, say is it more experimental like experimental use of the iphone it's it's less that it's experimental and more that it, it fits with the intimacy that's ne- that's necessary for the subject matter of Unsane. Mm-hmm. You know, like the fact that Unsane deals very much with very close shots of Claire Foy's face. Yeah. Um, up her nose, you know, is is done really well with an iPhone. And, you know, it gives, us this, it gives a graininess to mm-hmm. it, the kind of like 70s kind of, not exploited, but, you know, a very grindhouse-ish mm-hmm. feel. I don't want to necessarily say it's a grindhouse film, but it has that, it has the that disconnect. Of a film. It has that yeah. disconnect um, from a standard film, which kind of creates a sense of unease. Yeah, and this is kind of shot like a traditional movie. More, I mean, I think the only scene where I think the iPhone gimmick works in terms of the intimacy, are in terms of being able to kind of see a full shot, is that initial restaurant scene. It's a little more open. Oh, see, and I was actually going to say that's one of the things that doesn't work for me. Oh, really? In the sense that it seems like because it's, um, because it's so much dialogue in it, um, and that scene is so long. Not that it's a bad scene. I actually think it's a really well written scene. But it almost seems like Steven Soderbergh is looking for something to do with the camera, and the camera doesn't move a lot in this movie. So it kind of just bounces from one shot to another shot to another shot, and then eventually it ends up kind of on the table in front of Eric. You know what I mean? There's like a seamlessness to it. I think that oh, you yeah. usually don't see in a lot of films, Bohemian Rhapsody, that take a lot of. <laughs> it's that no take... <laughs> editing. Yeah, watch the fifty. Watch the YouTube video about how great the editing is in that film. The fifty cent. Well, you haven't watched. You haven't. You still haven't seen Bohemian Rhapsody. I've right? seen parts of it. I haven't seen the whole thing. I'll show you the the, the scene. It's on YouTube. Okay. About the scene in particular. Um, it's like fifty seven shots in like two minutes. Uh, 
but it's 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 I think it there's it's very seamless mm-hmm. in the way that scene's presented and it works so well with that dialogue, which is very quick, very snappy, and presented incredibly well. Is this Melvin Griggs Greg's first major role? Um, I think so. He's been in other stuff. I think he's really good. Yeah, no, he's there's. I mean, even though like we both agreed off air that we're not big fans of Sam's ab- ambitions, Zazie Bates' character or beats his character. Like she's good in this too. Everyone in this, I she's think, really is good in it. I think she's excellent. the least fleshed out. She's the least dimensional character that they've that they've got here, um, that they've that they've written here. I mean, so I mean, as the story goes, um, Eric Eric has signed his contract, but he's not getting paid um, to play because there's a lockout, and so Ray kind of devises a way, even though we don't learn it until later, um, to kind of end the lockout. Um, and Sam, through the whole movie, has kind of moving from one position to another position. She starts as Ray's assistant. Um, when we meet Ray, Sam is no longer an assistant. She is um, working on her own, I believe. She's like a junior agent or something. Or she's, or been, she's working or for she's someone else. she's been transitioned else. to another yeah. agent, yes. Um, and then by the end of the movie, she's working for um, the Players Union and is eventually going to be taking over. The job of representative of the players' union, it sounds like, she's being groomed to take to take that job over. Take the the job of Myra, right? Um, but no, she's the least. She's the most kind of traditionally, I guess, in a film sense, kind of the most traditional ambitions for a film character. Whereas mm-hmm. everyone else kind of has much more reserved or kind of quiet ambitions. They're not so very, not so. I don't want to say abruptly, but so out, in like your face front, or. or yeah. um, Inauthentically, kind well, I of think shown. I think um, what's the kid's name? Umber. What's his name? Darius Umber. Uh, uh, J- Jamiro. Jamiro Umber. Um, I think his mother, Amira Umber, played by uh, uh, Gerald Prescott, Prescott. who's who's really amazing. Good. Yeah. <laughs> who's, who I mean, let's let's, like off perf- the, let's get this off off the top. This is this would have popped up in my top five. Um, of, of last year. Films? Yeah. If it was released, like... In, yeah, this was a By 28- December 31st. Yeah, I fucking... I think this is Steven Soderbergh's best film. Huh, go into detail. What was oh, your... Well, no, what let's, was let's, talk, let's talk about this, but let's go back. Uh, just yeah, yeah, as, yeah, we're, okay. as we're kind of gleefully, like, exalting um, praise well, on this film. I, I think it's... So we were kind of talking about this a little bit, but, you know, um, about in regards to how the movie ends. And I think most of these characters have very delineated focuses so sam's focus is um her career you know what i mean uh which is which is fine but i think just the way it's presented is very linear you know what i mean and kind of without the depth that i think some of the other characters get in regards to their focus um amira umber's focus is her kids and the promotion of her kids and getting her kids you know everything that her kids deserve um regardless of what that means for her personality. You know what I mean? Like, as I think she comes off as kind of like, um, as really hard and almost kind of like a stage mother. Um, but she's getting it done for her kids. One son plays for the jets and the other son just got drafted by the Knicks or plays for the, the Knicks. New York team. Well, I think she said the jets. So the jets must well, have she let says her the say jets. It. No, she says the right, jets, but the basketball, but the, right, New York the New York team. team. Um, you know, Kyle McLaughlin is playing. If he's, if it's the New York team, he's, Supposed to be playing, I guess, a version of James Dolan, who is traditionally a kind of brick-headed dummy who plays in a blues rock band 
and makes terrible decisions. And he's, um, he's kind of presented. And he's really good. Uh, yeah. He's really good at that. I mean, what's interesting is all of the antagonists in this film, you know, David Seton character, I would say outside of Zachary Quinto's kind of character, but he's just such a minor nonsense He's such a minor be, character that they, some, don't even bother to light, to, they don't even bother to light him most of the he's time. He's meant to be, like, trotted on in the end, mostly. But, um, you know, the, that, that Gerald Prescott character in the comic Lachlan, the, the two characters you could look at as antagonists and definitely... For you know David Seton's point of view has in my you know in my obviously all the wrong opinions is coming out from the absolute wrong way. At least this this movie so expertly kind of creates motivation for them that even if you vehemently disagree with what they're saying, you kind of see where that particular character is coming from, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was you know incredibly clever. It's it, nobody is a dimensionless foil. Uh, for Ray, everyone's there. Everyone's coming into something, even if it's not said. They're coming into something right. with purpose. And to that end, everyone except is... for David Starr. Sorry, Zachary Quinto. You're just <laughs> yeah. You're just you're just there. To that end, I think the writing is so good in the sense that if everyone's not presented as a kind of dimensionless foil for Ray, everyone also isn't presented as a kind of um, you know like stepping stone. For Ray, you know what I mean? They are, but they're not presented as such. Except for David Starr. Except for David Starr. He's manipulating the situation. Like, Ray is manipulating the situation so thoroughly and expertly. And so, you know, with tactics that no one kind of expects him to use. That you don't see how he's playing one of these people off the other person until at the end of the film. When you realize, like, oh, he's been kind of negotiating this whole thing the whole what's, time. What's interesting, and what I think is really clever in the same way, though, is is there's a manipulation of the audience's expectations and the audience's belief of what his end goal is in the fact that that right. isn't his end goal. No. We don't know what his end goal is still. Um you know, he, he gives early on Eric that the Bible, the, the Bible, uh, yeah, yeah. and the package, and then it ends up being, you know, Harry Edwards' Revolt of the Black Athlete, your favorite book, um, book I just read and really loved, and yeah. well, to get into that, I assume, assume in a bit. Um, so you still don't know. I mean, like, like we said over text, it's kind of a movie that requires homework of the audience in the in the sense of you do not know, you know his step. Everything he's doing is, is a step process. He's always a couple steps ahead. Um, and you don't know if getting the lockout to end was the end goal. I mean, you assume it's not, but you, you just you don't know. It doesn't know sound where like it is. There. Right. So they keep intermittently bringing up um, or filling out Ray's backstory when he you know, talks about representing his cousin, his first, his his first, first client, client. yeah. Um, who, you know, Ray says in that just really amazing fucking speech to those kids um, at that, at that you know, the youth basketball, you know, the special day that they have that there's usually a bunch of NBA players at, but they can't have NBA players because the the lockout and no one's in town and blah, blah, blah. Um, and it kind of shows, and so you find out that he was, Ray's cousin was gay, and that Ray told him to kind of suppress the information because he was trying to protect him. And so... Really cleverly, you get this idea that Ray has, there's been a really subtle change in his thinking about what his job is as, a, as an agent. You know what I mean? And you find out when he talks to Zachary Quinto that first time that he's been like investing money for his, for his players, you know what I mean? As a kind of, or for his clients as a kind of like rainy day fund in case something like that um, should happen. And the idea of what his 
the idea of what his job is, you can see in the writing and the way that Andre Holland kind of gives this information out has really has morphed into something else. And by the end of the movie, when you finally find out what was in that package, the revolt of the black athlete, um, and you do a little homework, you realize that his goal has never been just to end the lockout. Um, His goal is no longer to protect his player in the same way that it was to protect to protect Eric in the same way that it was to protect his cousin, um, or even to protect Sam in the same way that it was to protect his cousin, or do any of the things that he would normally do. His his goal is really um, less defined than that, and but more significant. It is to raise the... I don't know how I want to say it. It's to raise the philosophical... How am I saying that? Of it's it's to elevate the idea of the black athlete out of simply like a commodity or someone to be brokered over or someone to broker power with. Well, the thing, or I, someone to make money off of, or to someone to make, or whose job is just to make money. Like you have a higher purpose. Um, you know, it's he talks about love of the game. And that, like, never lose that love, he says to those kids. But I don't think he's saying never lose that love of basketball. He's saying never lose the love of the self. Because as soon as you stop loving yourself and start loving the money or the fame or whatever more, then you're giving in to the culture's idea of what you should be. And, you know, what I find so brilliant, and, you know, this is a movie leaving the film I, I loved, and then re- after reading Revolt Back Athlete, I'm like, oh, this mm-hmm. <laughs> does a lot more. And the fact that Eric Scott's character is so driven by that love of the game, you know, and that all he wants to do, and Harry Edwards talks about this in the book, is, is you know, that the entire idea of, of not being, not quitting and not going back to quote-unquote ghetto or going back to that lifestyle and being a failure for that and mm-hmm. being exiled for that. And Eric has, like, that, that entire... <clears throat> idea of the love of the game and being driven by that and that's he just wants to play mm-hmm. you know he wants to make money but he wants to play he wants to be able to prove himself him and Jamero's entire conflict is about being the best and being the best player and you know when um when they discuss uh you know in Revolt the Black Athlete when Harry Edwards talks about the initial declaration of boycotting the 1968 Olympics mm-hmm. you know he says how the news press came out and said the Negro athlete loves to compete too much to become party to such an impossible rebellion. Um, and it's so clever how he sees the potential in the race, sees the potential in, in Eric to have like this, this identified self, you know, he's, he's a really Eric's is like very typical athlete in the sense, but has, has a very defined sense of trying to be self. Like, like he's, he's young and immature. He makes that bad deal with the loan. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but he has nuance and growth, and he's interested in in, in Sam. He, he, there's there's more of a dimensionality to him. There's a dimensionality to everybody, and you know, telling him you'll know when to read this, you'll know when to be presented with this, mm-hmm. and to say like, yeah, those types of ideas are important. To have that love of the game, to have that 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 need to rise up is important, but it's also buoyed by the fact that there's an entire world. There's the David Seatons of the world who are there to commodify you mm-hmm. you know and, and that you need to use your talents not just your 
your talents as an athlete because that's all they see you as as a commodity mm-hmm. as they, they don't see you as a person you know like you know, edwards talks about how for years you know black people weren't even allowed to be quarterbacks because they don't have the brains for the game they're mm-hmm. just there to run the place right, right and it's it's less it's it's the fact that ray sees in eric an immature kid but but a lot of potential to use that he sees in the same thing in jamero you know and i, I think there's an understanding a kind of quiet understanding where you know amara wants wants best for Jamero, but also kind of has a, a, a true understanding too that these kids growing up in this in this world i think the entire talking about the netflix deal or talk about the hulu deal shows like hey you could take the ownership of your talents because mm. you have the acumen you have the talents you have you, your your kids still you you need guidance um from people with your best interest in mind but this shows the potential that you know you're going to make them afraid and that's why i took from it you know like David Seaton folds. He doesn't fold exactly completely the way he should. Um, but he folds when extent. he's going to lose. When he's going to yeah. lose money to this kid. When the yeah. when the the bulk of this money can go to these kids, he says, "Well, we can't have that." And that's it's just it's an idea of of the ticking clock. You know, it's 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 coming. It needs to be the bread in. It needs to be just you know they they need to be fostered by people who care about their interests, who care about their who care. Who, who know that they're fully realized individuals who can have control over their own. Like they have yeah. the talent, you know, it's, it's, they, they can be owners of their own destiny. Well, they've kind of, so uh, there's been some, writing. also really read revolt, the black athlete. If you haven't, that's yeah. And you can get it. Anywhere. It's available. It's on archive.org. Yeah. I mean, um, it's a, I think it's an interesting, so I've read a, a specifically in The Ringer, but I've also read it mentioned in a couple of other things about the idea that um, this is a movie not just about the, you know, uh, basketball industry, but also about the film industry. And you can kind of, there are parallels to what Ray is proposing to the way that um, the film industry is kind of operating now. I think in the sense that you can kind of do whatever you want. You know, if you're Steven Soderbergh, you can take your iPhone and you can get some people together with a good script and you can go make a movie. You can distribute it however you want to. Steven Soderbergh is kind of famous for experimenting with distribution things, um, with stuff like Bubble, with stuff like, um, you know, Unsane came out, I think, on his own. Yeah, he funded Unsane himself. I think he did, or he did distribution alone, I believe. I think so. I think he did. And then he he went to Netflix for... um, for High Flying Bird because it was more difficult than I think he thought it was going to be. To get and also Netflix just is want to just be like, yeah, free reign. <laughs> which is part of the, which I think is part of the thing. You know what I mean? Is that he's, there is a, a, um, a, an ownership that Steven Soderbergh is allowed to have going outside of the studio system. Which is, I think, you know, probably what drew just, Ethan and Joel Cohen to it, which drew Alfonso Cuarón to it. Which is typically problematic. Which, you know, we, we've talked about this with the Netflix originals. We saw it last week in our discussion of um, Velvet Buzzsaw. We saw it with Hold the Dark, where you see talented filmmakers who still need guidance. Nicole Hall of Center. Yeah. Um, but they need guidance still. They need some sort of influence they haven't gotten there yet. Mm-hmm. And when you have a filmmaker like Steven Soderbergh, you got uh, Koa, Battle of Buster Struggs is good, but still it's a little bloated. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was going to happen regardless, I think. Um, or Alfonso Cuaron, when, when you have a filmmaker who knows their shit, like you can give them free reign and they will produce something like this. Right. So what was your previous favorite Steven Soderbergh movie? If this is your favorite now. 
Unsane. Is it Unsane? <laughs> what was your previous before that Steven Soderbergh movie? Nothing. Yeah, I. No, no, it was it was a. Uh, no, it was nothing. I I don't like Steven Soderbergh. And see, as I well, I didn't like Steven Soderbergh until. Um, it's funny. Because I guess side. I, I guess side effects. Maybe I thought side effects was fine. Okay, that's interesting because I kind of feel the same way. Is that I really like Steven Soderbergh's experiments way more than I like stuff like Traffic. I hate tra- I hate Traffic. Out of Sight. Or I hate the, the Ocean's, Ocean's trilogies. I hate like Aaron I thought, Brockovich is one of my Aaron least favorite films. Although we didn't mention Albert Finney passing. You know, oh. rest in peace, Albert Finney. You were cheers. Good. Yeah. We're going to pour our beers on Mario's carpet. You know, I don't know about everybody. Um, but, man, fuck Julia Roberts in that movie. Yeah, yes, she ruined everything. Um, but, like, so I... It's, I'm so glad she lost to Ellen Burstyn that year. Oh, well, oh, right, we're in the alternate reality. Yes, Ellen Burstyn won an Oscar. The most deserved Oscar in, like, the last 20 years. Well, no, years. she won, she won an, uh, an award that matters. That was my, like, first year doing my own awards, and she won it, so... <laughs> um, Ellen Burstyn, if you want to collect your reward, you can call me. Yeah, I know. Right. Don't call me. We That'd don't, be weird. Text we me. We don't love. I don't love Steven. I think he's good. I appreciate what he does, and I I know he's that a he's, talented filmmaker. I know that he's good at his job. I just don't always connect with his movies. Yeah. Um. There's. They're all. They generally seem to be a lot more style than substance. And I think it's one of the things that I like about this new iPhone thing is that the style is literally can only be whatever it is. You know what I mean? Like he's, he's not doing anything flashy or or crazy interesting. I think he's getting to a point where he has enough comp. I mean, this is a base assumption where he has enough confidence in what he's doing or just a lack of interest in doing anything for a studio that he's allowed now to kind of and I guess you kind of sell this in Sex, Lies, and Videotapes which I don't like um, where he's allowed to kind of blend style with his style with, with what substance he wants to do you know. Well, I always thought he did that with like the experiments. So, like with the girlfriend experience, I thought the, I really oh, liked the girlfriend experience. That was actually my favorite. But was more he, than side effects. I love. Girlfriend but again, experience. he took. I convinced a lot myself that Sasha shit. Gray was an excellent actress. I don't think she was an excellent actress, but I think no. But I convinced worked. myself she, she was an excellent. actress. But I think she worked. He knew. Yeah, no, because she's great in that. Right. Like because Steven Soderbergh knew how to direct her, and then I saw like Would You Rather, and I was like, Oh, no, she, she's not good. <laughs> Sorry, but, then you have, but it's interesting because then you have something like Logan Lucky, which is just kind of like that ocean style. Like I, I good like f- Logan Lucky, but, it's, but it's not doing anything. No, you know what I mean it's just doing it's the fluff. thing. It's good fluff. But I think the problem with Steven Soderbergh is that when he's not making fluff, I'm not 100 percent sure what he's doing. And if it's not one of his experiments, then it's just a generally well-made movie that I'm not super, I'm not overly concerned about. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Um, but he's made a ton of them, so I guess we kind of have to be concerned. But I think this is a very, this is I think my favorite like first screening of a Soderbergh movie that I've that I've ever seen. That oh, I've yeah, sat down and well, watched it and been like, well, I really liked that. I yeah, didn't have to is, think about it or or see it again or anything like that. His Netflix movies, all right, his Netflix, his uh, iPhone movies are really working for me because <laughs> you know I like Girlfriend Experience on the first viewing, but Unsane and and this I've I, I really liked Unsane. Mostly because of Claire Foy, who I nominated mm-hmm. uh, this year, but but this movie, I I would not be surprised if this movie makes it all the way to the end of the year for it's, me. It's got a lot of work I mean, to do. Andre Holland, it's got to make it a whole Andre, year. Yeah, but Unsane did it. Unsane came out in March, and it still got a it still got an actress nomination from me. Andre Holland, if this was 2018, Andre Holland would have been third place for me. He would have been over Joaquin mm, Phoenix. He's very good. Yeah, he's fucking excellent. He's very the only very, two very people good. I liked. I mean, even still, like he'd be in that. It would it would have been a deliberation. I think still Ethan Hawke would have won. Mm-hmm. I think um, William Defoe mm-hmm. would have won. Would have beat him out there. But 
Mm. And maybe because he's not asked to do has much work in terms of a dramatic moment, a dramatic turn. It's it's just a very authentic performance, but mm-hmm. he's fucking excellent in this. Oh yeah, he's very good. He's one of the few parts I really liked about um, Moonlight too, in terms of his performance. I don't mm-hmm. we talked about this. I don't I'm not a big Moonlight guy. Yeah. But right. the one thing I did love about Moonlight was the screen was the one thing I liked about this Moonlight was the screenplay. Mm-hmm. And holy shit is uh yeah, just really quick before we end this um well two things really quick uh, <laughs> this script is fucking phenomenal oh yeah, yeah, yeah. it is i this so so a lot of people always talk about um what's his face aaron sorkin for the for the flash fire sort of mm-hmm. dialogue I'm, I'm not a big fan of it because it feels really un, inauthentic to mm-hmm. me it feels passe, i think it's fun i don't and, really worry about the, the theatrical yeah. but this is so rapid fire but feels so real in a lot of points even though it's it's theatrical in elements it, the the story itself is theatrical and the speed and the momentum in which it moves is theatrical, but man, does it feel real. It's theatrical when Ray's got to sell somebody something. Yeah. You know what I mean? And at the oh, top, exactly. When I was watching it, like when he was having that Netflix-Hulu conversation, I was just kind of like, oh, this is... I don't want to hear Hulu mentioned in this conversation in this way, but then when you think about it, you're like, he's just trying to sell Ray. He's just yeah. trying to sell Eric on this idea. Well, what I want to ask you really quick, too, is, you know, speaking about that, um, one of the bigger criticisms, and this movie's been pretty well lauded, is the pacing in the second act leading into the third act, a lot of people say it kind of slows down. I thought it was fucking fine. I thought I every... Thought, I thought that middle fifth, or like, yeah, the second fifth of the, <laughs> the movie, I think, was fairly slow when Eric and Ray and um, Sam are just kind of talking and Sam and Eric are texting stuff. I was like, what's happening here? What is so this? I saw this movie on the, the most appropriate format on my HTC M18 phone. <laughs> It feels an appropriate format. I think so. Uh, at midnight, 1230, kind of buzz in Boston uh, with headphones on. And I started and I was like, oh, this movie's just get, starting to get going. And then it was over. It felt like a 30-minute like YouTube video to me. That right. move, this movie moves at, for me, such a fire pace. I agree. And I don't know if it's so much... I mean, I think it's well edited. I think it's paced extreme. I think it's paced, paced well. But I think it's just carried so much by a phenomenal screenplay. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, there, there's some fat to, to, to terms of the editing. Um, but in terms of the writing, like we talked about, there's such nuance to the every character right. except for David Starr. But also to the situation. Take that, Zachary Quinto. <laughs> but, like, I think one of the things um, that, that he's probably making a point in that, you know, the ending does kind of move... The ending moves fast. It just kind of ends. But I think the point that he's making is that, like, in this new age that we live in, something can happen on this day. <laughs> 72 hours, my new record. a certain amount of time later, like, a day later, they could be scheduling, like, sold-out events in Las Vegas. You know what I mean? Between, like, NBA players. Um, like, that's the speed at which life operates at now. And these owners kind of have to fucking get. I mean, Kevin Hart, you know, one day Oscar host, next day ten minutes later, Twitter not Oscar next host. day not Oscar host. Um, yeah, this this script is is fire. So yeah, it's another it's another. Oh, go ahead. But one last point: What is Carl Anthony Towns looking at? Um, <laughs> so there, interspersed throughout this movie is interviews with. Rookies, you know, for first year second, rookie, who young, would have been young when they players, were yeah, when yeah. they were rookies first you know, near the top of their draft. Yeah, Reggie Jackson's been in the league for a while. Um, Crockley Towns has been in there for like four for or five years right three, now. Three four years, yeah. But so for the most part, you know, Donovan Mitchell, Reggie Jackson, they're all looking at the camera. 
Did, did they have the interviewer standing up? Or do we think Carl Anthony Towns just does not like making eye contact? I don't think... And I was thinking about this when I was watching he's, it. And he's I he's kind staring of, up the entire time. I kind of get what he where he's probably coming from, which is that it's weird. It, it can be weird to just stare into a camera. You know what I mean? That can be strange. Um, and even like Reggie Jackson kind of a little bit, he's kind of turned and he kind of looks in another direction sometimes and then comes back to the camera. The idea is looking at the interviewer. Because if you're yeah. not just, if you're not used to just staring at a camera, just staring at a camera and talking to it can be, I, I have to imagine can feel very strange. You know what I mean? Don't you think so? I think that's what it was. That he was just uh, like, oh, it's just weird to look at you. As, as a huge narcissist, I do not. <laughs> But no, that's, that's the one part where I was like, that's the one only time I was taken out of the movie, and it's fine, but it's, it's funny. Like, Carl Anthony Towns is just never once really, makes eye contact with it. But I, it's, it's all really well done I really well like those, those intercut things, yeah. I really want to see Steven Soderbergh make it. I mean, has he made a documentary before? I mean, I just... I'm sure he has. He made Aaron Brockovich. Yeah, that's a documentary, right? Oh, Aaron yeah, Brockovich. Yeah. About Albert Finney <laughs> dealing with fucking Julia Roberts for two hours. Um... No, I just found that. I found that funny. Yeah. All right. Um, we Cry will... Anthony Towns, if you're listening, for some reason, find a better podcast. But secondly, uh, tweet us about, about what's going on there. Yeah, yeah. Tell us, tell us which one of us is right. All right, we'll be right back with our number 74s. Welcome back. Um, I'm going to steal a page out of Mario's... Wait, we're doing, we're doing yours first? We're doing my first. Son yeah. of a bitch. God damn it. We're doing my first. <clears throat> um, Give me a second here. I gotta talk for a while. Um, so in 2006, I was deep, Mario, in the throes of my addiction to the Criterion Collection. I was in bad shape. I was maxing out credit cards, buying... Truffaut and John Cassavetti's box sets. I'm two months away, man, from the uh, release of the channel. Oh, I know. I'm, I've already signed up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you get the first month free if you sign up now. Are you sure a password? Yeah, of course I'll show you. Well, well, it's pivotal. I did it with the pivotal film thing. Okay, cool. Um, I was ran- just randomly buying stuff that was well-reviewed. On uh, that got good reviews from Roger Ebert, so like, um, you know, I had all of the Kurosawa doc- movies that had been released by then. I had a lot of Renoir movies that had been released by then. I had a lot of Bergman movies that had been released. Um, I had two copies of uh, the Four Hundred Blows, technically, because I had from the Truffaut box set, the Antoine Janelle box set, and then a sing- an individual copy of the Four Hundred Blows. I had. I was on eBay buying out of print Criterion films like Silence of the Lambs. Um, RoboCop was out of print. I didn't buy it, but, you know, I knew that it was there. Um, And then in 2006, Mario, Criterion announced that they were releasing a 50-DVD box set called Essential Art House, 50 Years of Jazz Films. And my parents asked me what I wanted for Christmas. I said, the only thing I want is this box set, and they got it for me. They got it. And the book for that box set will be visible on Twitter with a picture of our beer. Um, the, I mean, the funny thing is I already had a bunch of these movies. <laughs> so I didn't 
technically need it. Like, I had Seven Samurai, and I had Rashomon, and I had Rules of the Game, and I had the Seventh Seal. Um, I had them, but I wanted a huge, big, heavy box. I have subsequently lost all of those DVDs due to being unemployed and needing money, and the <laughs> Criterion DVDs held their value for, for a pretty good amount of time. Um, but I got my, I've had my box set still. Um, my box set is is a significant thing in my life. Um, and the movie that I, that came out of the box set, that I gravitated to more than any other thing and kind of helped to shape, I think, my future viewing of films was um, Victor Arise's 1973 film, The Spirit of the Beehive. Uh, this movie takes place in 1940, so it's just after the end of the Spanish Civil War. Um, around 1940, it says. Um, so Franco has, has been in power now for, officially, for like a year. Um, it takes place in a small, um, a small village. Um, you don't really know exactly who... Like, the political affiliation of the village, per se... Do you? I don't think you do. I've seen it a few times now, and I, I, I can't get a full grasp on, like, who is well, so supporting who or whatever. I, but I don't know. I'm not sure that they're matters. They're Castilian. Yeah. So you would assume that Castilian, by that point, would have ingrained. Because Castilian was one of the first... No, Castilian fell later. Um, like, was one of the last things to fall. So you would assume it'd be pretty But they're not right. from there. They the, no. the mother makes it seem like they they <clears throat> they left wherever they were and ended up. And ended up which in would, that town. Which would make sense if they're trying to run from the forces. Because right. Castile was one of the last places to fall. I mean, that's when you got the German freedom soldiers coming in. Mm-hmm. Um, it depends on what part of Castile. I don't think that, that doesn't matter tremendously. But um, Man, I read a lot about the Spanish Civil War this week. Give me something. Yeah, okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, let you, I'll let you do all your, your Civil, Spanish Civil War dissertating. We're going to be doing a lot of that throughout the series, though. Yeah. Um... So when the movie opens, there's going to be a movie playing at uh, the town hall. It's going to be Frankenstein, John Wales Frankenstein from 1931. Uh, the whole town shows up, almost the whole town shows up to see this movie. Um, and one of the people that does is Anna and her sister Isabel. Anna is six or seven. Um, Isabel's a little older. Um, and it kind of changes Anna as a person. She soon, after she sees the movie, she starts kind of viewing her life through the prism of Frankenstein. Um, Her father keeps bees. He is a kind of stern, quiet man. Her mother is, seems loving but distant. She's writing letters and delivering letters to someone. Her sister Isabel likes to tell stories and make things up that Anna believes fully. Um, and towards the second half of this movie, Anna meets a soldier in an abandoned barn that her and her sister have been going to and kind of having, I don't know, I like to think of them as existential adventures there. Um, the soldier is, uh, he's a Republican soldier, so he's fighting against Franco. Um, Anna gives him some food. She gives him a coat that has her fa- our father's coat that has her father's watch in it. Um, 
But in the night, one night, the soldier is killed. Um, they find Franco's men find the watch, which leads them back to um, Anna's father. Anna is confronted by her father about the soldier, and Anna runs away, where she inevitably meets, I suppose inevitably, um, meets Frankenstein. Um, she wakes up in the grass. They bring her home. Um, and that's kind of the end of the movie. Um, it's kind of a... I've, I've always... It's one of this... This is one of those movies that kind of stays with me because there's not a lot of dialogue in it. And the music is evocative, but not... It's not doing the work for the movie. You know what I mean? It's more... It's, it's period and it's cultural, but it's not doing the emotional work of the movie. So I can, I can let go of, of the music. Um, this is a movie that kind of stays in my head in images. So if it's not the color of the light in that honeycomb shaped window, that's always kind of going on. Um, it's Anna's face, um, at the end of the movie when she's, you know, calling out to, um, you know, the spirit, um, or it's, you know, those really, those are unbelievable establishing shots of the Spanish countryside or the Castilian countryside um, with that barn in the middle of it, that kind of barren wasteland with that really washed out sky um, in the background. Um, yeah. Those just kind of like, those are just like burned into my head. Um well, discussion of that, that that cinematography and that is kind of a sad story overall. With um, the whole Luis, well, Luis, like Cuadrados, um, the cinematographer, like his story. Mm-hmm. Um, he's going blind making this. Yeah, and well, an assistant would have to take um, photos of like what the shot was going to be, like of the scene, and then he would take a that picture look at a magnifying glass and then decide how he's going to light it from there. Well, and even so, you know, I think this, this was Victor Enrique's first f- film. I think he made th- two other films after told, this. Yeah. And then he, El Sir I, and a documentary. I yeah. Think? And, um, even, um, I saw El, El Sir a long time ago. I haven't seen his other movies. I haven't yet. seen any of the other ones. Um, even Anna Torrent, who plays Anna, the Quince tree son who has, she is even. She has said that this movie kind of has like making this movie deeply affected her, and she's kind of not been able to shake it since she made it. And I guess they did. They did a, a thing where they reenacted the kind of um, iconic scene from the film where her and her sister are on the train tracks, and you know Anna's staring at the distance, and her sister has her head on the tracks, and she just kind of got cold and and um, kind of couldn't couldn't function. Um, and I can see how that would happen. I mean, it's a very quiet movie. Not a lot happens. Um, but like everything kind of happens. You know what I mean? It's it's one of those it's one of those movies where there's every shot has carries deep symbolism. Every word that's uttered means more than it's supposed to mean. So I mean, even a movie, even a scene like um, you know when they're looking for mushrooms. Um, it just seems like her father is telling her about mushrooms. But if you link everything together, the father is essentially saying, where Anna has just asked, 
I mean, this and this this is why this is a great piece of art. Um, maybe you feel differently. I don't know. Um, so when Anna's watching the movie, the Frankenstein movie, and they they don't really show a lot of the film. Um, so they show Frankenstein seeing the little girl that he ends up throwing in the lake because they're, you know, um, having fun throwing flowers and Frankenstein just wants to throw some stuff. You don't see that happen. You see Frankenstein meet the girl and then you see the father carrying the girl through the streets. And Anna asks her sister Isabel, um, why did he kill her? And Isabel, essentially, Isabel says, I'll tell you later. And then when Isabel does tell her, she makes up all this stuff about, about spirits. Um, so when Anna's father is saying that there is these um what are the mushrooms the chanterelles they're in this field amongst these trees i mean these are beautiful shots and they're looking at mushrooms and he's telling them you know which mushrooms are good and which mushrooms are bad and they kind of look in the distance and he shows her the hills where like the chanterelles grow and she's like oh can we go there and he's like no i can't take you i can't take you weaklings there um because it's too far they would never make it but he also says then that you can't tell your mother um so it's like these, all these secrets. Well, it's all interesting. Of these, all of these kind of, and for a six-year-old, you know, who's experiencing life this way, and her and and her sister has just told her that there's all these spirits. All of this stuff must link up. You know what I mean? And there's, and not only that, there's secret mushrooms that you we can't eat that are so far away we can't even reach, and you can't tell your mother about. But there's also mushrooms that can kill you, and you you know that have black gills, and you know, but look a lot like regular mushrooms. You know what I mean? There's all these. Life has all these secret pockets to it that she didn't even realize existed before until she saw this movie, and I think that's one of the reasons that it kind of stays with me. I mean, it's a, it's a, it is a passionate movie, movie. You know, it's a movie about movies essentially and how they can, how they can twist your they shape life. and everything. Well, I found interesting too. Um, you know that that uh, Teresa Fernando kind of marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, Teresa Fernando. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The thing I found interesting with the Teresa and Fernando marriage is they're not even in shots together. And like you don't even really establish the fact that they're married um, until she like calls out to him and you get an entirely separate shot of him responding and then you realize like, oh, this is a married couple. Like it's very separated. And and yeah, this movie is in I don't like it um, overall. Uh, I I don't like it, but it's one of those it's gonna be a Roma situation where I really appreciate what it's doing. I think it's shot beautifully. I think everything works in it. Mm-hmm. It just, you ever get those films that you, you really respect as a piece of art? Yeah, I think Roma, you just, <laughs> you just said well, it. You know, yeah, exactly. It's just, it's a movie that hits every right button. It's a masterpiece of a film. Mm-hmm. But you do not connect with it um, sure, as I'll, a film I'll goer. Yeah. This is that movie. I mean, I think it's a great, excellent film. Mm-hmm. I don't like it. Well, um, I think, so it's, is this the first time you've seen it? It was my first time. So, I mean, this is a really interesting point. And, um, I watched it twice. Okay. So this is, re- this is really interesting, I think, because I've been thinking about this a lot. In the sense that I think one of the reasons that I really liked it is that because it was so different from the movies that I was collecting. You know what I mean? Mm. It wasn't a Kurosawa movie. It wasn't a Bergman movie. Um, it, was, it was different. It was asking something different of me. It wasn't a Fellini movie. Um, it was asking something different of me than those other directors were asking of me. Um, and at the time, I was just like, holy shit, like I can, um, you know, I'm willing to give this movie that's that's just totally quiet and, you know, has asked me to connect all these symbols and these metaphors together. Um, I want to do that stuff. But it's interesting in the sense that I actually, my appreciation of this film has actually grown 
since, because I haven't watched it that often, has grown since that first viewing. So now I, I'm kind of like, an, I'm kind of obsessed with it. And I've got like another page of notes that I didn't bring because they're not relevant to the conversation about what is, like what may be happening here. Um, not from a Spanish Civil War perspective, but just from a um, from a, a film watching perspective. How is it that the the juxtaposing my own experience with of um, viewing life through the prism of a film and what this film is kind of saying about that? Well, I think what's interesting is is it is very new. Like especially seeing it that way, I think I would have been taken aback by it. Um, but it, it felt a lot of ways to me like uh, like new German cinema, kind of like the, the stuff come out from Wim Wenders, you know, like mm. the American Friend, or even something like Aguirre, Wrath of God, even though it's a little more like a Herzog movie, even though it's a little more in your face. There's, there's similar styles of the presentation of certain elements of minimalistic storytelling. The Wim Wenders thing is good. Yeah. Um, yeah I think the Herzog's a bit of a reach, but... It, me, no, but, but it's, uh, it's, there's a naturalism to it, which I think is in because a couple of the the academic um, essays I read about it like reference Italian, you know, Italian neorealism and stuff like that. See, I, I think I think it's a little different than Italian neorealism because neorealism more suggests a very sort of grounded approach to your symbolism, whereas right. this is not grounded. Well, I think there's, but, there's a lot of there had to be like right. Franco was just died or was about ready to die. Um, when he made when he made it, yeah. Yeah, when when, he, when this was made, you know, Franco dies in '73, I believe, off the top of my head. I'm just saying that from memory. Um, you still like your ability to criticize, um, you know, the Franco the state regime. was yeah. the, the, the regime was. Um, yeah, he dies actually in '75. Mm-hmm. Um, your ability to criticize it was like Franco was a little looser compared to most uh, authoritarians. At the end, he was anyway. Yeah, like, well. Earlier, kind of in, during the, like the fifties and sixties, when he starts trying into the United Nations and whatnot, he loosens up because he's like allowed because he realized like and the big point of this film is the isolation that they suffered where the entire rest of the <laughs> world is like go fuck yourself, guy. Um, you still couldn't directly criticize. Uh, you couldn't be vehemently subversive to the state, um, and so there has to be a lot of really eloquently done. Uh, criticisms of the Franco state, like, you know, even beyond, and, you know, this is open to the, to the side of, of what you're interpreting, even beyond, like, those those really beautiful shots of, like, the barn, the barren barn, mm-hmm. it represents that kind of emptiness and isolation yeah. that um, Spain goes through at the end of the, of the World War II and then going into the 50s and 60s where they're just turned away from everything. But even beyond that, I think the mushroom conversation is interesting in the sense of the fear that comes in the authoritarian state and the fact that you can never, you know, you see symbol, you could see slight tinges of what's safe to actually be yourself with mm-hmm. or what's safe to ingest or what's safe to engage with, mm-hmm. you know, and that there are always the things that look very close. Like you could just only tell by the black gills, right? You know, they, but they look very close to the other healthy sort of mushrooms, even though it smells good. It smells great. Uh, is what, um, Isabel said, I believe it's Isabel that says it smells mm-hmm. good. It's just, no, like this is utterly destructive to you, but more so like the ideas and the people who are kind of laying in rest by you, those people who are still representing the Franco state, the people who are representing those authoritarian 
um, nationalist ideas are destructive. Well, and, there's some... and, and they, they seem like they have the skin and the flesh of, of yeah. your next door neighbor, you know, and I think that's, that's really clever. This movie is insanely great in how veiled its criticism is. Well, and I think you get a little bit of that too in like the glass beehive. Where like you know, oh, I thought that was a little. You can. I thought that was a little less, um, <laughs> a little less subtle. Well, they, I'm, I'm surprised I'm that. Not, pass, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised some of the stuff passed the censors at this point. Right, but I'm not. But it's a, it's still it's still, um, it's represented as it, it like an actual kind of live image of a poem that this guy is writing, um, but the idea that it, you can see. You can see into it. Like, you can always see into it. Like, the work that's being done in the hives in the beginning of the movie that you can't see. Um, versus the work that's being done in the hive that's in his office that he doesn't have to wear a suit to observe that he can see. This kind of veiled... This very subtle reference... I mean, I guess it's not subtle, but I think it is subtle. Reference to the idea of living in a dictatorial state. You know what I mean? Where, like, people are watching you... Literally all the time, even if you don't know that they're watching you. Um, and people are, when you, and even though they may not be watching you, even though they may not be right there, kind of dictating your every move, in a sense that they are because you live there. You yeah. know what I mean? It's like these two different, uh, these two different ways of being are confronted through the bees, which is really, which is really interesting. I, th- I mean, I think... You know, it might not be that subtle, but I think it's interesting. It's an interesting way to present the two ways that you can perceive your life. That you're being, you're isolated, but you're also being, because you live where you live, you're being controlled. See, I almost took the glass beehive sequence as a criticism of the, um, how Franco, not, not necessarily Franco, but kind of the state in general kind of aligned itself early on with some of the, the, the voters in terms of, the criticism of religion, mm-hmm. you know, in the fact that like, as the leftists took over in the early 1930s, you know, the big things were that, that freedom of speech, you know, um, even allowing women's voting, but also separation from the Catholic church and, and disengendering the power mm-hmm. of the Catholic church. And you know, the early leaders eventually leaned to Franco um, as they took over Morocco and whatnot, were kind of able to use those ideas and use that as an easy in. And a lot of this film, to me, deals with those people who are stuck in the middle, who are stuck in their tradition, stuck in the ways of what they're always doing. I think that's true, yeah. Um, And The Last Beehive, to me, is kind of like that. That is, you know, your identity is so attached to Catholicism. Your identity is so attached to tradition. And, you know, Francoism kind of was like the return to tradition that... An outsider observing would see was it horror and ter- something terrible and yeah, horrific. Yeah, yeah. Um, but when you're a part of it, you don't see that. You don't see you know? it. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's interesting too, in, in the sense of there's just so there, there, it's an incredible film. It's it's hard it's hard that I don't like it. You know, it, it's it's hard that I really respect it, but I just I can't. It doesn't. Yeah, it, it's it's a weird kind of thing to say. Um, but there's there's so many great complex kind of criticisms of, of what's happening in Spain. I'm not, I mean, in Spain at the time, it's not so much a, 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 a it didn't feel so much to me a criticism of the end of the Franco regime. It doesn't feel it really feels like a history piece in the sense of I, I think 
you know, and I'd, I'd have to read more in, into the history of, um, like, like some of my knowledge with the Spanish Civil War and the rise of Francoism is kind of like buried in, you know, what George Orwell had to say in homage to Catalonia. Um, so I don't really know near the end mm-hmm. of, of the regime. Um, but this film feels like very much it's kind of a telling of how things got to where they were. Mm. Um, I think I think at the point where you know the 70s were happening, people were starting to realize like we're broke. You know, Spain was broke at the time. Spain had just been allowed into the UN, um, but they they had almost no membership. They had no real autonomy as a world power, mm. um, and, and it feels to me like an examination of how we got here. It's it's kind of like making a it's kind of like if we built the border wall and 30 years from now people are like, how did this happen? <laughs> what is this? Yeah, it, it would be and you know, let's say somehow Mike Pence's kids become president well, so that's and, a, and they're basically going oh, out of power. Jesus Christ. Yeah. All right. Um yeah. Um, but Christ, it feels right. to me like 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 an examination of of the youth of that time and Rance was what he had to be like. He was around thirty when he made this, so he was youth during near the when the regime was starting to kind of like falter in in the fallout of World War Two. Um, it feels an examination of how we got here because a lot of that discussion too about the mushrooms feels to me in a lot of ways like um, the vastness of what is good, what is poisonous, and, and what poisons the well, or even seeing the people, the kids falling in line by jumping over the bonfire. Mm. And whatnot seems to me in suggestion in some ways too to just how utterly derelict um, the leftist forces were at that Spanish Civil War. How there was like five different groups of people with different ideas they fought behind, and you see this today, even with like you know the left American state. I mean, to a much less extent. Of we all want something different. Yeah. Exactly. Um, they, we haven't unified against the cause like conservatives have. Um, no, and now we're unifying against other Democrats. So yes, yeah. terrific. No, exactly. Um, which is like a big problem I have right now is the fact that like as much as I don't like some of that Kamala Harris, I'm still like fuck it. If she gets the nomination, I'm Let's just going just to support it, yeah. her. Well, I mean, uh, and, and but it's just just and I'll, I'll, sorry, yeah, I'll, I'll yeah, jump yeah. off. But um, no, it no. seems to be an examination of like the fact you had anarchists and communists and socialists and all these different groups, and you see like George Orwell, like his homage to Catalonia is just about how disengendered he was by the communist state. Like he goes into that war communist, he gets shot in the throat, and he's like, whoa, nobody knows anything. Right. You know, he leaves that just like so fucking disengendered and and so disenfranchised. And, and this to me seems like a good. And I think that's what the trauma is. The trauma is this kind of childhood innocence mm. going in. You know, the Anna has this 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 wonder to her, and then she sees what what people are like. You know, no matter, I mean, definitely the Franco state, but no matter where you're coming from, everyone's fucking. You know, you want to get somewhere, but everyone's bringing in their own nonsense. Well, I think it's, and I think it's, you know, we can end. I guess um, unless this, have, this is definitely a move. It's going to be, this is going to be interesting because we're going to have like a year from now. You're going to be no, like, you know gonna, what? I watched we, again. I watched. Spirit no, of we have life. we have three films on our list that all deal with the Spanish Civil. Like the Spanish Civil War is going to be a current throughout yeah. our pivotal films. Um, good job, Franco. I think you did one good thing. <laughs> I think may you burn in hell. Um, whatever. I think you can look at at the 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 Frankenstein got reborn as Mitch McConnell. Hopefully. I know they overlapped in life, but whatever. I think you can look at the Anna seeing the Frankenstein film thing as um, the Frankenstein's an interesting 
analogy for what you just described. You know what I mean? He's made of different pieces of things. This mm-hmm. kind of, this, whatever it was, revolution. He's an amalgamation. Uh, was amal- yeah, exactly. Amalgamation is a perfect way to say it. Of all these different things. But at the end of it, and now, and even when she's confronted with it, you know what I mean? Gold star. I like that. I like that point of view. <laughs> Even when she's confronted with think it about that. at the end of the movie, she still goes – and she, so she spends the night outside. You know what I mean? She's confronted with the horror that's presented in front of her. Um, at the end of the movie, she still goes to the window and she, she calls to it. You know what I mean? Her view of history has now been refracted through this horror. And how does it – how does that affect her going forward? You know what I mean? That's and, a really good point. And obviously is going to. And you see a little bit of that like juxtaposed with Don Jose. You know what I mean? That skeleton that they're making. Yeah. But it's just like different. They're putting this different pieces of, together. And then where do you – like you come out like this. Like this is what you know. This is your history. It's a brutal history, but it's your history. Isn't that, that's a good point though. The, the, I didn't even connect that. The amalgamation – the Frankenstein monster being accommodate, looking for purity and beauty. Like, like you could see that, and maybe this is a vast, like, if Victor Reese wants to send us a tweet and be like, I'm an old man, you people are idiots. Um, the amalgamation of, of, of beings all coming from a general concept of, of trying to create life and trying to create something beautiful, like, they, like him holding the flower yep. and seeing the beauty in of it. And you could see that maybe... This might be a reach, but seeing the beauty of that in the sense of liberal ideas, um, if if that Frankenstein monster kind of represented the next step That's awesome. of everything, but then because they they are so conflicted, because they're not a whole being, they destroy it. They or destroy that because it. there's a there's a pure or they're allowed to destroy it. The there's, pure ideas there's a to be purity destroyed. to the to the that's a good the point. purity of the there's a purity to the, the initial idea, I suppose. And this is not to say that Franco was a good guy or did good things, but and encased in a, well, no, I don't mean Franco's case, ideas. I meant I, I think Frankenstein more represents the ideas of the leftists. Okay, all right, but maybe maybe still, no, no, maybe, yeah, yeah, maybe maybe not. Maybe I mean I don't I don't see any sort of discussion in this movie that kind of <laughs> shows any positivity towards. The Frank estate. No, but I was just going to say, like, it, it, contained within any idea is a kind of a kind of general purity, perhaps to do good. But then there's a corrupting of that idea due to human nature, which leads to us everyone else getting thrown in a river and drowned. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Which is why I took. I mean, from you saying that now, I take that has the the rebels, the 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 the, the Republicans trying to reach a better life for everyone, that they're conflicting things and, and their inability to, to unify as a whole mm. ended up this, you know, leading to the weakness that destroyed it, mm. and drowning it. That's, that's why I took it. This movie is fantastic in the way that I think it's one of the best films maybe ever made that I've seen in terms of interpreting symbolism. It's, it's unfortunate it just didn't resonate with me. I mean, it, resonate, it does resonate with me, but it's unfortunate that's just... It's not pleasurable to watch, I guess, for me. It's not pleasant. It's slow. I mean, it is... It's not so much that slow. It's just... Un- Maybe because it has so many undercurrents and it's so not black and white mm. in its moral philosophy. Um, I think, you know, the, obviously the sister piece to this is going to be Pan's Labyrinth. 
Um, I have an essay for you. It's called Reclaiming Revelation, Pan's Labyrinth, and the Spirit of the Beehive by Robert J. Miles. Yeah, I, I did watch, like, I watched five different videos discussing the combination. But Pan's Labyrinth is 100% black and white. But, you know, the Republicans, and they, if you look at the history, Republicans were doing some really awful atrocities, too. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a lot of stuff that's happened in this movie. When Now that I've studied a lot about, like... Um, a lot of Irish history and Irish Civil War stuff and a lot of IRA stuff. There's a lot of things that are equally relevant to some from things that I've read, um, novels that I've read, and, and uh, to a lot of the things that were happening here. You know what I mean? Where the Republicans were making mistakes as well. The Republicans mm. were going to places that I don't think they intended to go or wanted to go or were even perhaps justified in going. To, to prove whatever point that they were trying to prove. And, I mean, there's an interesting... There's a book called The Old Jest that kind of looks... I think it may have, it came out after this book, but it looks the same way in the sense that there's a Republic, an IRA soldier ends up on this beach living in a shack talking to, like, a teenager about, you know, similar ideas that are kind of being expressed here. You know what I mean? Um, you know, what is the cost of... of, of what is the cost of freedom? Basically, I think is is what the point of that book is. Um, is that here? I don't. I, I'm not 100 percent sure that that's here. Um, but there are things. There's echoes of all of these civil wars. I think have echoes of like echo each other. You know what I mean? There's ins and outs that are more complicated than just this side was very bad and this side was totally righteous. I mean, it's interesting too, and this this would be for discussion is how much like um the formation and the proliferation of the ETA kind of influences the 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 Bass terrorist group that kind of was like mm-hmm. a student group in response okay. to Franco that would rise to prominence not rise to prominence but at least were known because they started doing like committing their first killings in the end of the 60s like once again leading to that resurgence of having the right moral framework in the sense of trying to get the world to the place trying to get people maybe towards a place they need to be and i i don't i haven't read too much about uta to really know the true background of it um but you know going about it in absolutely the wrong way mm-hmm. um and it, it's kind of an appropriate film to be made in the rise of you know you get the rise of the violence there like kind of like the resurgence of violence mm-hmm. that kind of like settled down as franco not really calmed down, but definitely settled into a place where he's allowing criticism to kind of beat up. Um, and now you start getting that, the violence again kind of rising around the time of the making of this movie. So it's in, it would be interesting to just read about we'll have how to much of that. that influences. We'll make sure the next time we talk about the Spanish Civil War. Isn't it interesting that some well of the most read. interesting movies are, are the ones that have such ingrained historical... Yeah, well, there's a, it's Same interesting. Thing. In one of these art, I don't know it's if it's like Metropolis. One. The entire my entire opinion yeah, of Metropolis led to the rise of. Um, there's interesting things about this essay that I just gave you, or it's you this one. Or it's another one. If if it is, I can direct you to it about the things that this movie gets right in its metaphors regarding the Spanish Civil War that Pan's Labyrinth gets like way wrong about its metaphors regarding the Spanish Civil War. Um, but we you know that's to discuss it. Uh, <laughs> A much later, a much, much later date yeah. for both of us. Um, we will definitely do our research before. I mean, we, we're going to discuss the Spanish Civil War in about six more weeks again. So uh, we'll be a little more well-read well, on it. Yeah, we'll be up there. 
We're, oh, yeah, we're going to talk about Snow White. I forgot. Yeah. So, you know, we'll be ready. <laughs> we'll be ready. And uh, But talking about serious, deeply important topics and films with ingrained senses of history, we'll be right back with my number 74. I want to put this on loop, just the entire discussion. Welcome back. My number 74 is, um, well, a little less of a dramatic punch than Tom's number 74. I don't have much of a story. Do you want to find a way to make it about the Spanish Civil War? Oh, that'd be good, yeah. I mean, it's (laughs) it's only 10 years, a little little less than a decade Mm. after uh, Spirit of the Beehive. That's true. 1982. The famed Forrest Whitaker, Nicolas Cage film, <laughs> Fast Times at Ridgemont High. She's got to be somebody's baby. She must be somebody's baby. She's got to be somebody's baby. She's so fine. She's probably somebody's only light. Gonna shine. Um, maybe one of the, the first definitely eighties sort of coming of age stories that movies that, that matter in, in a sense, I guess, um, in, in terms of the historical significance, uh, written by Cameron Crowe, who would then go on to write a bunch of movies that sucked, (laughs) um, directed by Amy Heckerling, who would then go on to direct a bunch of movies that sucked. Clueless is a good movie. I don't like Clueless. Why? I just like Paul Rudd. The only thing I like about Clueless is Paul Rudd. I like I think Clueless is all right. Although, I guess Alicia Silverstone and Stacey Dash were my first like crushes. Mm. But Alicia Silverstone, my crush on her started because of the movie, The Crush. crush. Carrie mm-hmm. Elway's. Yeah, I was already in love with. Yeah. Still, I still love Carrie Elway. That was a, that was a curious movie, The Crush. Yeah, it's it's weird. It's a weird one. Um. It seems like he should have known that that was going to happen. No, no, that's it's a dumb movie. It's a bad movie. It's like that's like the entire time of like the hand that rocks the cradle and all those movies yeah, coming out. Yeah, it feels and like forth. you should it's know like, this stuff. It's like I just don't trust her. Even or, single um, white female, like, oh, you should know. Yes, I was about to say you should be female. very. This is not going well. You should have been aware that, of the, the fact that this is, that is not Jennifer going Jason well. Is that Jennifer Jason Leigh in that too? Yeah, in Bridget Fonda. Yeah. Like clearly always, things are a miss here. My one thing about single white female. This is kind of speaking to how much I really love Fast Time Journal High. I like it, and it was pivotal to me, but not a movie I really will single white go female. to bat for. Um, but Single White Female is interesting to me in the sense that I always thought Jennifer Jason Lee's and Bridget Fonda's character should have been flipped. I find Bridget Fonda to be a more like threatening, not naive force in that uh, than... I find Bridget Fonda to be more threatening and less naive than I would have Jeffrey Jason Lee. Hmm. I think that movie's better. But Jennifer Jason Lee can seem... I also think that movie needed a ton more Steven Weber. Well, I think every movie needs a ton more Steven Weber. Uh, no, I have, I have a great idea. Let's get Steven Weber. Yep. Let's get Tony Shalhoub. Let's get... Um, Tim, Tim Daly. Yeah. Thomas A. and Church together for a movie. Maybe they're at a regional airport. <laughs> In Nantucket, Massachusetts, or some island, you yep. know, and yep. they just vary we'll people call it back. Pro- and... Propeller. Yeah. No, 
landing gear. Well, what was that movie that won the first Best Picture? Oh, um... Wang. Cimarron? Wings? Wings. Cimarron? Oh, oh so, no. Yeah, we'll call it Cimarron. Okay. Yeah, we'll call it Cimarron. Anyways, Fast Times at Ridgemont High is about Peach Bowl at Ridgemont High School. Um, various kids, including Sean Penn, saving people during Hurricane Katrina. Uh, it's it's a movie that, that, that kind of wanders all over the place. There's, there's, there's not a lot to say about it's it. Terrible movie. <laughs> Um, and I, I kind of agree with you that it, it's wandering. I think all of Cameron Crowe's movies... Well, they just the scenes just end, and then there's just another scene. It, to me, it is a collection of sketches. Yeah, almost. oh, I agree. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. But yes, yes, I yes. watched this movie first, once again, yep. continuing the pantheon of Mario was too young to be watching <laughs> these movies. When I was 11 years old, uh-huh. I watched it when I was 11. Mm-hmm. Because I had a big crush on Phoebe Cates. Which which was what year? No, no. Sorry, I watched this when I was 10. Okay. I watched this like in 96. Okay. I watched this the week I first saw... No, it would have been 97. I watched this the first week I saw Scream, so it would have been 97. Because mm-hmm. I saw Scream on video. Um, I had a huge crush on Phoebe Cates for years because of Drop Dead Fred mm-hmm. and Gremlins sure. 2. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Both. One of those is a good movie. The other one's Drop Dead Fred. Um <laughs> And my mom was like, oh, you like Phoebe Cates? Watch this movie. Not because of the nudity. The, 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 nudes, the very the, gratuitous the, the, nudity. The most, well, the most famous, like, nude scene probably in his Like, it and Halle Berry's, like, swordfish scene have to be the most famous. Gratuitous nude scenes? Yeah. Just kind of out of nowhere, like, hey, look at this. Yeah. But, like, not because of that, but just because she's like, oh, you like Phoebe Cates? She loved Fast Time Journal High. Um, so I watched this, and... You know, it works. It's 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 really it works for a kid. It's it's such, and that's a weird thing to say because it's such an R-rated film. Yeah, but I, it, there's there's no connecting plot that that really carries throughout the entire thing. There, there's story threads, but they're mishmash. Um, but it, it's 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 interesting. And then I think it is, and throughout the years, I have still watched this and I still love it. It's such an imperfect movie. Vastly imperfect movie. I don't mm-hmm. think Amy Heckerling is a good act, good director. I don't think Cameron Crowe is a good writer or director. Um, but when you get this cast together, who also aren't great at times. Well, it's just, they're weird. So, it's weird. It's it's uh, very jarring. So, and this is maybe the first instance of a movie I saw where I really enjoyed it. I laughed my ass off. You know, I love, I still think this is, you know, Spicoli is still one of, like, Sean Penn's top performances, just in terms of, like, how much he leans into it. Oh, yeah. We, yeah, we're going to have to have a, a Spicoli conversation because I have questions. Okay. Um, and I really like... Like what Forrest Whitaker's doing. I, I like that, you know, Mr. Hand is just a great... Well, Mr. Hand is like the hero of the movie as far as I'm concerned. Mr. Well, Mr. Hand and Mr. Vargas are my two favorite characters probably in this too, like followed by Spicoli. But like there is a certain earnest... There, it's an earnest movie Well, it's that a Cameron Crowe movie, so it's going to be very earnest. But I don't think it's done because... because maybe it's because of... It was my first, you know, approach with Cameron Crowe. But it was interesting as a kid and even now watching it again how earnest the performances feel and how earnest the moments feel against this backdrop of a movie that is so technically 
awful. Mm. Yeah, I don't think it's well directed. It's shot boringly. It's over long. It's um, edited it feels, just terribly. It's ninety minutes, but it feels like, at times like it's ever. over two hours. The writing and it's goofy at points. I think really the punchlines don't hit. They only hit because the actors hit the right hit it with a certain kind of volume well, and a certain I, kind of weight. Um, and that, I would that argue, makes it funny. And I would argue that some of those punchlines only land because of what we now know about someone like Judge Reinhold. You know what I mean? And every scene ends with like a one with like a with like a punchline or like a a tagline or something. Yeah. And it's just funny to watch Judge Reinhold like deliver some of these <laughs> deliver some of these things, knowing what we know now about who Judge Reinhold is. Because I saw this movie after you saw it. Because you know I was. Born in eighty, I was born in eighty two, so these movies didn't mean anything to me. You saw it literally last week. <laughs> no, I saw, <laughs> I saw it like in the early two thousands. Oh, really? You know what I mean? When like, like so after I saw the Breakfast Club and all those the John Hughes things, it was one of those things like I got around to seeing because everyone was like, "Oh, you gotta see Fast Times at Ridgemont High," and then afterwards I was like, "Do you gotta see Fast, Fast Times at Ridgemont High?" Like, I'm pretty sure I, I, <laughs> I don't have to see, but I had the same experience. I think um, in the sense that it is I, – I guess I understand why in the 80s it would be a big deal. Well, I think one thing's interesting too about this is um, – Or to a kid, I see why this would be a big deal. Well, and I'm, I'm a huge fan of the 80s comedy. Like, And I am not. You know, we'll yep. talk very shortly about – a movie you also hate, Breakfast Club. I'm going to do that whole that whole conversation with a gun in my mouth. <laughs> um, a few weeks ago, we talked about Uncle Buck, which is one of my favorite 80s comedies. And this movie kind of set the tone for the 80s comedy. I think this and, what, Kentucky Fried movie, which was 1977, mm-hmm. I believe, the John Landis movie, kind of set the tone for what would come, like what John Hughes would see and improve upon. And I, mean, I saw... Uncle Buck before I saw this, but I definitely saw like Breakfast Club and everything after this. And it's it's a good introduction to the genre um, in that way. This is it's definitely one of the pivotal films that I don't stand behind in the sense of I don't think it's as great as it is. It got nominated for a Writers Guild Award for somehow. Jesus Christ. It didn't so, win. I um, mean, so my question would be something like, I'm coming at it from... It would be interesting to have a conversation about having watched it. I'm assuming you watched it again to do this. Yeah. Have this conversation. So watching it in 2019, like, does this movie matter at at all anymore? Like, does are it, we just so... Because... So we were talking off air about the Jennifer Jason Lee scene where after she has that very fast sex with Mike Damone, um, played by Robert Romanus, the great Robert Romanus... Um, who can score Earth, Wind, and Fire tickets like nobody's business. Um, Amy Heckerling literally just leaves her laying there completely naked for, you know, several beats too long. To the point where Jennifer Jason Lee actively looks like she's looking around going like, when are, are you done filming me naked yet? Type of thing. Um and I don't want to even single this out as like the Me Too era, but in the era of civilization where we give a shit about people, 
like, does this movie, can this movie really hold up? Well, Where Jennifer Jason Lee and Phoebe Cates are just taking their shirts off literally to sell movie tickets. Just for the sake of taking their shirts off. I, no, I would agree. Um, you know, Roger Ebert said uh, that this movie had been directed by a man, I'd call it sexist. It was directed by a woman, Amy Heckerling, and it's sexist all the same. You know, it... it, it Yeah, I mean, maybe, yeah, it doesn't work now. Um, but I'm not wondering if it works. I'm wondering if it matters. No, it so does, I don't think a, it matters. We're in a big 80s nostalgia phase now in the culture, like with Stranger Things. And, you know, I just bought a fucking Super Nintendo, you know, classic. Why? Because so I could play Mario Kart and Super Mario World. Why not make a meme machine? I don't know what that is. Get a Raspberry Pi. You could throw more games on it and make your own thing. What is a Raspberry, like a pie that I'm going to eat? Mm-hmm. No, man. We'll talk about off. off right. Okay, okay. Um, but we're in a super, and so like you know, the first run of like the Nintendo Classic that they put out with all those games loaded on it sold out and like whatever, and they didn't. There weren't any more available for like six months until Nintendo decided to make another like round of things. Like we are all '80s nostalgia out now in the culture. But do these? To me, it seems like these movies actually don't. Not only do they not hold up, but they don't matter. So I'm wondering why... Well, what are movies would you say besides this? Well, you're going to say Breakfast Club. Like The Breakfast... Not, but the Breakfast Club's Breakfast a little more tactful, a little bit, though. But like something like Sixteen Candles. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Or um, some of those early... The other early John Hughes things. Even some oh, I, think, I think a great example is um, a movie whose name I am forgetting right now, but it's... Well, War Revenge, Games. Revenge of the Nerds. Revenge of the Nerds is another one, yeah. A rape scene in Revenge yeah. of the Nerds. Um, oh, what the fuck was that movie where they all... It's had several sequels. They all go... What the fuck was that movie called? So those, Keep talking. Those movies that kind of defined... 80s sex comedies. They'll be, 80s they'll be, 80s yeah. culture. You know what I mean? So this movie is rife with 80s music, yep. um, with 80s clothing, with 80s... You mean some Jackson Brown? Some ni- Porkies. Porkies. Fucking Porkies. Yeah, Porkies. There you go. Um... With 80s, like, iconology with, like, malls and, you know, Forrest Whitaker's car. Um, does this stuff even have any place in our culture other than just, like, base? I remember that. It's- that was good. You know what I mean? I, I I don't know. Like, as I was watching this now, I was like, this almost feels like we should get rid of this. There is. This feels like the, one of the things that we should. And now there's a criticism of you because I totally get it. Like, we had this conversation like about. Um, usual suspects? Not the usual suspects, but like that 80s movie, just one of the one of the guys. When that girl wants to be uh, get a journalism scholarship, so she pretends to be a boy until. And everyone thinks she's a boy until she flashes the guy that she loves, like, at that party. Um and it's just her with her shirt open for like, you know, however many minutes or you know, however many seconds or beats or whatever you want to say. And as like a fourteen year old kid, I was like, Holy shit. But now I'm just like, Well, this is this is the wrong way to go about having any of these conversations. You know what I mean? The youth culture is not that there's no way that that represented even in nineteen eighty two the youth culture. You know what I mean? So we were just coming at it from a you can't even say that this is a an archive in a, of sorts, or like a time capsule of what life was like in the 80s, because life wasn't like this in the 80s. And if you want to tell me that it was, I would have to assume that you were living a really pretty shitty life. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
Um, so I'm just wondering where, where does this, where does something like Fast Times at Ridgemont High go? You know what I mean? Like, like where does it belong? Like, I think it's. Does it belong being viewed still, or does it belong in the kind of like ash heap of like cultural ephemera? Like, is it? It just does it just kind of. Is it time for it to drift away, even though everyone keeps trying to like hammer this no, here's, stuff back? I think it's movies like this that, and like like the basis of this, like it being on my list, is is this was my nice introduction to the 1980s film, and I think that's how it works still in the fact that, um, you know, it's 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 soundly made in the sense of its performances. It had so many flaws and so many things that kind of like stand as a relic of the time. Um, but then we're also used to influence uh, mm. better 80s films. Um, but here's my thing, and my thing has always been about that. There, there's, for, like, one of the things I did appreciate about this film was how kind of unjudgmentally, um, and even though it, it's dealt with so problematically, because it's just, once again, not a good crew making it, but just her, her abortion, um, Stacy's abortion. Yep. Like, it's dealt with... Not necessarily flippantly, but dealt with as just a normal decision for her to have made. You know, for for a comedy of that time to kind of make that point is is good. Um, I think. I mean, probably it's for not a major handled, studio movie. Yeah, also, it's but. not handled extremely well. It's not handled delicately because this film's basically like juggling an egg wearing iron gloves. <laughs> um, I'm just imagining. This is actually very good. The imagining the egg just exploding when you go to catch it. But there's there are. Films that I think create a good discussion, and I think this is one of them, about the culture of then versus now. Mm. I think this movie stands in the echelon of films that are really problematic and interesting to view um, as a relic of their time and how society viewed acceptable comedy and viewed acceptable things mm-hmm. um, versus the, the commodity of films that have no place and they should be burnt to the ground. I mean, they, they can exist, obviously, because it's a free society, and I wouldn't never talk about the censorship of that, but they just do not be, need to be watched. Um, I think this movie kind of stands in, in, in you know, it has, has a delicate discussion of abortion, but at least it's trying to do something, but has a lot of problematic things in terms of nudity, and it's something in the same tense as, you know, Big, a 1988 movie, which, you know, has... A thirteen-year-old in an adult's body having sex with um, a thirty-year-old woman. So it's a question of unintentional kind of pedophilia, but also a question of consent, mm-hmm. in the sense that Susan doesn't know that Josh is a child. Um, you know, it exists. I think it exists in in something where these are films that have entered our cultural zeitgeist in such a way that they influence so many other films that would come. You know, Fast Times Original High influences um, influences things like Breakfast Club and influences all the John Hughes films and even leading on into... Like American Pie and stuff Yeah, like that. exactly. Um, whereas big influences, I mean, I guess to an extent, kind of those bigger-than-life kind of kids' movies, something like, you know, you could even say something like Jumanji or something like that. There's, mm-hmm. there's some influence in the fantastical. Um, the kid becoming more than that or, or you know, like, you know, the very big blockbuster kind of film. Uh, you know, you, you compare that to, or contrast that with films that have no place anymore. Um, Revenge of the Nerds. Like, there's just clear rape in that. Even though the time, I think, is presented as humor, but it doesn't work. Or, the best example, C. Thomas Howe's Soul Man. Which... Whoa, Soul Man is... 
you know, Soulman is very relevant to today's conversation. You know, <laughs> wearing blackface in the eight in eighty six, and people going, no, mm. no, you know, th- those are movies that deserve to just be at the very bottom of the five cent Walmart bin. Right, let um, me, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know if this movie exists anymore. I think this movie joins that five cent Walmart bin bin if Sean Penn is not in this movie. Interesting. And I think it's... But it is, it is a launching pad for Reinhold, for, no. Jeff, for Jason Lee, for Phoebe Cates. Yeah. For Vincent Scalavilli. Sure. It is a launching pad for all... <laughs> For all those I mean, things, man, he would go on to be in Judge Ghost. Rod- He's great Judge in Ghost. Reinhold would make lots of really great forty um, Beverly Hills Billy, Cop movies. This is Billy was the best part of Ghost. The the time that I had to endure Ghost when I was trying to watch Child's Play two without sound because my I mom mean, dragged me. Into Ghost, Ghost is not like the Fuck worst movie. Ghost, man, those spirits are scary. Yeah, they are. But Jerry Zucker, <laughs> he can't do a drama. Sorry, Zucker. Um. So even like, so. I think it's really interesting. So I said that Mr. Hand was kind of my hero in this movie, and I think he is. Um, but I think it's really great, and I didn't really notice it the first time I saw it, and I really noticed it this time. Is that I'm not 100% sure what, like who Spicoli is, because it seems like when Mr. Hand is criticizing him, like his soul is just leaking out of his body. You know what I mean? Like... Spicoli is such a complicated... It seems like he's such a complicated character that, like, when he really wants to be a good guy and he wants to do everything right and he can't, so when he's being criticized for it, it's just, like, it ruins him. Yeah, which is... Which, know, but is that, is that supposed to be what, no, no, <laughs> what's that's happening Sean, here? That's Sean Penn being a great actor. But he just, like... That's Sean Penn being a great actor and, you know, Ray Walston, who's a good was a really great actor of his time, too, realizing that this kid's a really good actor. And Almost as good as this Nicolas Cage kid who's in one shot. And when we talk, I mean, I think Amy Heckerling did a really shitty job in this movie. I think what? Cameron Crowe did a really shitty job in this movie. But I think one of the really interesting things is that they still couldn't make... Not interesting things, but one of the ways that this movie is weird is that their shitty job made Sean Penn's good acting seem really out of place and, st- and strange and kind of like... Wait, what is actually what is the tone of this movie supposed to what is the tone of this movie supposed to be? Because this guy looks like he's about to jump off of a bridge. But I know he's supposed to be a surfer guy that doesn't care about anything. Yeah. <laughs> but he just died inside. No, yeah, and like I don't know. I, I I think it still works. It still enters our culture in the sense of the influence it had. I don't think any of their films but think about that for a second. So, I mean, I think actually this is a really interesting time to have this conversation. I know. I, have you seen any of the new Netflix like sex comedy shows, like Sex Education? Or no, everyone keeps telling me to watch Sex Education. But I right. Just, so I don't like, have time for TV show. I barely could get through Atlanta. I mean, I love Atlanta, but like that, it's like a commitment, man. I know, like and I'm feeling the same hours. way about The Good Place now. Me. I haven't even started True Detective yet. I watched one episode and I couldn't do it anymore. But it's interesting in the sense that like we went through. It was a very influential movie for a long time, and then for 10 years it wasn't an influential movie anymore. And now it seems like because the 80s are a big thing again, Fast Times at Ridgemont High and I don't, goes I, back to being an influential well, I movie. I agree with that. I think all throughout college, you know, which is now around about 10 years ago. Um, That's what I said. It was people, – people would talk about 80s 
comedies, and they would mention Fast Times at Ridgemont High as being the grandfather of it. They were, it was, but like they weren't making those movies. Like they stopped making American Pie movies. They stopped making. Did they Alicia Cuthbert movies? Did they? Didn't they? Euro Trip was a 2004 film. Alicia Cuthbert, that girl next door, is 2004. It's 2019. Well, you're saying. Oh, you're saying 10 years I'm saying ago. it was like, it was for a while they were still making these and then well, these think, movies didn't make 40, any money anymore. And then they were just kind of like. I think 40 year old virgin was the transition from those types of films to. They stopped making movies for teenagers and they started making these kinds of movies for adults. For like 40 year old stoners. Yeah. So they got, so you get the 40 year old version, you get forgetting Sarah Marshall and you get. Um, Step Brothers. Step Brothers and Anchorman and old school and that type of stuff. Well, so they Anchorman's moved. 04. Okay. Yeah, Anchorman's kind of exist out. So they kind of took they took those two ideas and they made they stopped making teen comedies and they started making adult themed. Yeah, because you do get those teen comedies during '09 and you have Sex Drive. um, That's not a movie. I mean, I know it's a movie, but like that's not a movie that the culture. Excuse me, Amanda Crew was born on June fifth, nineteen eighty six. I don't know who that is. I don't know. She's just. She was born on my birthday. Who is that? Thanks, person who's going to steal my identity. Taylor um, Hansen was born on my birthday, but I don't talk about it. One big question I have to ask you. This is your big starring role. You get to fire Judge Reinhold in this movie. Yeah. The actor is Tom Nolan. Is that true? The one that fires Hamilton. Wow. So how's it feel? You only started in four movies, Tom. In the eighties, I was also I was also, also not alive. I also wrote a mystery uh, biography. You were just of a what, just born when this came out, I think. Yeah, comes out in August. So I was I was four months old. Four yeah, months that was. Old. I, I really did good think, work. I think you were. I think you were robbed. I think so too. That's what explains Nicolas Cage's face. He's like, "That's a baby." They all just assumed it was you were Tom Noonan <laughs> coming off of your great Manhunter performance. You know what's so funny is I just had a Tom Noonan thought the other day. I was talking to a guy. Someplace that reminded me very much of Tom Noonan. And I wanted to tell him, like, you are Tom Noonan. Do you know that you're Tom Noonan? And he was just like, yeah, I am Tom Noonan. Hmm. I like Tom Noonan. We should always be thinking about Tom Noonan. We're going to talk about Tom Noonan later. Um, anything else we want to say? No, it's a fine movie. It's not good. It's funny. It's, it's funny. It's funny because of the performances. It's not funny. It's good to see. It's interesting. Like I said, the only reason it shows up as a pivotal film for me is because it influenced the films I would grow to appreciate. And I yeah. think it only did that in the sense that it's a weird amalgamation of a movie um, that the performances have a lot of weight to them, especially Spicoli, especially, you know, Sean Penn's performance. Uh, but everything else just doesn't work. Well, it's a weirdly... It, I also it, like the fact that Judge Reinhold's like the popular high school kid, and like three years later, it'd just be like, you're just a fucking nerd, Reinhold. I think this is an interesting movie in the sense that, like, when you're making, when you're doing something like this, this becomes a very complicated movie. And at the time, it's like not a complicated movie. It's like, this is just a stupid movie. But like, when you're looking at, when you're tracking the history of your existence through film, you're like, wow, that's, that, that's a, that's, I have questions about myself now. Yeah, like, well, there, not a question about myself, but like this becomes more complicated than just like this is this movie and this goes here and like let's you know think, go on. I think one of the the best factors of film has you grow throughout the years um, is the fact that you look back at movies you really loved and appreciated. Not talking so much about Usual Suspects. There's a movie that's just off the tip of my mind right now. 
can't remember what it is. Um, they really, especially comedies, I think, you, you find something you, funny. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then you revisit that movie 10, 15 years later, and the history's changed, and you've grown as a person, and you realize that that's a punching down sort of comedy, or that comedy exudes some sort of yeah, privilege, I guess you could say. Some sort of... You find humor in it because you're not the victim. Um, and then you realize how shitty that was to find it funny. And it makes you reevaluate the fact of, of the necessary growth a person has. Or the necessary growth that like culture has in finding something funny. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, my movie like that for me... And it was a movie that was almost on my list was Tommy Boy. Because I, when I was a kid, I fucking loved Tommy Boy. Oh, man. Boy. I haven't watched that. What's wrong with Tommy Boy? Nothing is bad about it per se, but it's just kind of like this guy's fat and stupid. Here is a whole movie about how fat and stupid this guy is. But to be to, okay, and but now I'm gonna I'm gonna die, not, I'm gonna I, die on but, I'm gonna die on a post right here. He's fat. He's fat and stupid. Like from the the front, yeah. But he has the acumen that his father had, and he has still a purpose. Like it's still. Tommy Boy is a really good comedy. But here's what I would say though. So when I would re- when I've rewatched Tommy Boy recently, when I was when I was making this list and I wanted to put Tommy Boy on and I wanted to see, I didn't find that stuff funny anymore. Not because I think it's not problematic. because it's I think it's problematic. I'm just past it. I'm just kind of over it. And so there's still like the great scene. I mean, one of the pivot if we made a list of pivotal scenes, which may be like a separate episode as we get like we should start thinking about that stuff as we get oh, later into the thing. It's a heavy um, no man, I'm I'm really I'm really excited for you to shit all over one of my pivotal scenes. <laughs> one of my pivotal scenes is the scene in Tommy Boy when he's sitting in that guy's office talking about um, like the, <laughs> the brake pads and like the truck explodes. He's like, "There's a cliff!" Ah, oh my god! Here comes the beat wagon. Yeah, that is one of the pivotal scenes of my. Not just film-going existence. That's one of the seeing that scene for the first time was one of the pivotal moments of my Are life. Are you saying that scene's no longer funny to you? That scene is funny. The rest that of the movie I find hilarious. really boring. So every I haven't, time I haven't watched it in years, every time Chris Farley gets my... hit in the face, and that's kind of what I'm 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 not saying from a cultural stand like from a cultural sensitivity standpoint. I'm just saying from a comedy standpoint, like something like Fast Times at Ridgemont High or something like Tommy Boy for me which I saw at the same time you saw Fast Times Original High. I was the same age when I saw Tommy Boy. Um, that stuff that was really funny to me is just kind of like, okay. Like, I either want you to take it way further. Yeah, you had to have at least or, been 13 when you saw Tommy Boy. Yeah. Maybe I, I was probably 14. I was younger when I saw Fast Times. I'm, a, I'm hipster cool when it comes to the We've decided you're hipster cool for lots of reasons today. All right. Um, but I think that's. So oh, yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 interesting, and this is one movie definitely that is interesting in that way that you review it and go like, oh, there's a lot, there's things like, it's a nice evaluation of where you were and found something entertaining, and where you are now, and how you don't find those things entertaining for more mature reasons. Mm, well said. Thank you. That's a good note to say that you can say some well said or not so well said if need be things listen i just deleted out of our email inbox all of the twitter notifications about people that we follow tweeting other things and that was it <laughs> so somebody tweet something at us 
that we can respond to. I have to do a better job of actually tweeting. It's hard. Like I said, it's hard. It's hard because, you know what? You know, this is my problem. With, we are with, not tweeters, Mario. This is my problem with Twitter is, is when I have something that I feel like this isn't going to be a criticism on people that have, I guess, commercial-based Twitter. I guess you could call you could call our Twitter a commercial-based Twitter. We're, mm-hmm. we're obviously trying to advertise the podcast. Um, I just never, and it, this is a separate conversation, feel comfortable tweeting something for the sake or messaging something for the sake of messaging something. I just don't want to get our face out there just to present news. I'm going to I want to do it because it's something I feel compelled to mm. share. Uh, right. I never feel compelled to share just kind of like, hey, I'm watching this movie. It's pretty good. Or like, like, oh, there's this casting news. Isn't this pretty interesting? Like, I don't, like, yeah, the, large, exactly. like I don't the last care. time I really felt compelled to, to tweet anything was like with House That Jack Built. Like the fact that it was going to get, you know, a one day release and the fact that we went to go see it. Like that was. That was a big deal. Yeah. It felt it, it, that Quarter was a big deal court. for us. Um for us, you know, and that that feels like something. Like, I don't know. Maybe we just maybe we use Twitter wrong. Maybe, maybe we're old men because we're, we're talking. We're not. About we're, fact- not we're not Alexander Ocasio Cortez. We don't. We don't <laughs> understand how to use Twitter to like create our brand. Because we're talking. I know that she's trying to create fast I mean, times. She might my- be. She's probably trying to create a brand, but like she's probably trying to do something better um, <sighs> for her own sake. I know that's a she's that's so a com- she's so complicated. She's the most complicated figure in my life right now, and I have a, and I have a five year old, and she's so much more complicated. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I just, I really wish things were happening in the world of film, right? And maybe this is like, maybe well, things, the world of film isn't, you know what, though, interesting because, enough to like, cause every, well, I don't, no, no, go ahead. I'm just, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, that's my thinking everything face. Everything there is to tweet about isn't something new to the conversation. Like, yeah, if everyone was cool with the editing and cinematography, like films being knocked out, you know, for the commercial break. Like I'd feel compelled to be like, this is pretty stupid. But like when everyone's saying it's stupid, and like like when when Quentin Tarantino and Martin Scorsese and Spike Lee when and, the ASC are coming out and going like, what the fuck, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Actually, they should be in support of it, so they could become like they could be like, we're the relevant cinematography award. And maybe this is like the culture now, in the sense that there's so many people saying one thing, and it's like everyone else is. It's kind of just like, yeah, that's common sense. It's like, I don't need to, like, clutter the dialogue well, that's, with the echo chamber. And that's kind of one of the reasons why, like, I'm, I'm glad we're doing this. We're going to be end up doing this podcast for a whole year. I'm sad that we missed movies last year that we would have been able to tweet about and be like, you know what, we saw, not that anyone gives a fuck what we tweet about, but it would have felt actually relevant to us to tell someone, like, hey, you know, Blaze is a really fucking good movie like we did. No, or exactly. Like, or, like... You know, we both saw eighth grade. Eighth grade is really is and eighth grade was a little you know, something. Eighth grade was a little more mainstream. And it's like the thing like I don't feel so compelled to, to have like tweeted about High Flying Bird because I think High Flying Bird it's getting a lot came of press, out, yeah. And the people who are going to watch it and are going to like really the people dig that into care, it, yeah. Are the people that we want to reach are going to know about this movie. Blaze is something that you know, if you didn't mention it, I wouldn't have even known about it. Something like Columbus, like when Columbus, Columbus first came out in Septem- yeah. early September. Of I didn't know Columbus existed until 17. you told me that Columbus wrecked you or whatever. I literally, text was. I, you know, this is the early, the early days of movie pass. The movie pass, by the way, was a, a card that allowed you to see a movie a day for free. <laughs> uh, not for free for 99. The history phase of movie um, pass. 
it still somehow exists. But you know, I just wanted to see a movie and like I saw Columbus, and that's something like you'd want. It's something that just is not. You know, I just don't feel, and maybe like maybe I'll tweet more has like things like come in that that seem interesting that seem like they're not as heavily discussed. I agree. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. We're really selling the, our Twitter, which you can <laughs> comment to us at at twitter.com slash filmpivotal. Yeah. And if you do comment at us, we'll actually comment back. We will, because we, we are <laughs> waiting. We'll give you multiple hearts, and we'll give you, probably give you a follow we'll probably We will just follow you back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, if you want to tell us how we're being dumb about Twitter, or ways that you can help us be better tweeters. <laughs> if you or, want to apply to our social media, you know, we'll, I will send you a If you want to be our intern, our social media manager intern... Yeah, you can send us an application, or, an, or you can send us we a will, cover letter and a resume to pivot. I will film. actually pay you. I will pay you twenty dollars a year, which is better than most intern that jobs. Seems like a lot. We will let you have one of the beers that we drink. I on will the episode. allow you a spot at my table to play board games. There you go. That's a big deal. I will most that's likely, a big deal. For I'll us. most likely beat you. Yeah, that's a big deal. Um, pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail dot com, or you can go to pivotalfilm dot com and look at. The lists of our pivotal films and list of the beers we drank and links to where you can subscribe and links to our Twitter, which we're going to post more on and essays Hopefully. and lists and whatever. We um, haven't done any essays yet, have we? Nope. I'm working on one. I got a title for one. Yeah, I started, I started, on I started writing again, like short stories. So but maybe I'll get into, I'll get into a flow of... Uh, maybe we'll do a special pivotal, pivotal short story. No, we won't. <laughs> At least that one. Um... Yeah. All right, but next week, I don't know what we're going to talk about next week. Um, but yeah, what we, is is nothing's. This is going to have to be a little battle angel. We're going to have to do it. Uh, no, no, we're not going to do that. Robert Rodriguez is, is a hard pass for me. Yeah, I'm interested. No, I'm, I'm not, not interested. I'm not. Yeah, <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I, I don't know what else to say. Oh, you know what? We should do. We should do foreign films next week because Shoplifters came out on the twelfth. Shoplifters is out now. You saw Burning. I'm not going to have time to watch. Okay, not the rest of it now. Right. I mean, I, maybe, but like it's gonna be. Well, it's, we can talk about burning. Or something. I need like two weeks' notice before we do that. So, just like we're gonna do, you should see a movie and drink a beer, and we'll talk to you next week.